Hello, beautiful people of Brattleboro. Welcome to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the phone with me from Montpelier, bright and early. Oh my gosh, we're still all drinking our coffee. I want to welcome Representative Emily Kornheiser to the show, as well as, for one more week, Representative Matt Treber. Hey, guys. Or I should say, hey, folks. How are you? (laughs) Still waking up, just like you are, so it's okay. You have a lot of energy. (laughs) (laughs) I drank a bigger cup of coffee. (laughs) Fair. So... In case uh, for folks in Wyndham County here who haven't heard, uh, this week, Matt Treber, after, well, he's in the middle of his fifth term, um, announced that he will be resigning, uh, I believe, next week. Is that correct, Matt? Correct. And just quickly for folks, one reason you are deciding to step down is you have a work with Vogue Rehab and you have students that you're serving and you just felt you weren't able to serve in the legislature and meet these students' needs at the same time. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? Sure. So, um, like you said, I work with students in in the seven area high schools around Wyndham and Windsor counties uh, that are aged 14 to 22, and they're all students with disabilities. Um, And my job in Voc Rehab is to help work with them to help them figure out what it is that they want to do when they graduate and to help make that happen. Um, and while state government allows for you to take a leave of absence the entire period of time that you're in the legislature, um, this year I would be unable to, to work at all during that time period. So I would have an entire class of senior students that I've been working with that I would basically be disappearing for their entire senior year. So I had to weigh and balance that out and ultimately came down on the side of um, wanting to make sure that I was not leaving a bunch of students uh, in their senior year um, right before they head out into the world. And so to clarify for listeners who might sort of forget the cycle of the legislature sometimes, we meet officially to do our work from January through sometime in May. And we do that Tuesday through Friday. So those of us who have jobs often go, myself for instance, go into work on Mondays for a full day of work in the office on Mondays and then do sort of other work on the margins of the week. But those Mondays in the office are quite important for connecting with you know, folks I serve. And I can imagine the students you work with, uh, Matt, need you more than just Mondays. Oh, yeah. It would be very difficult to do that. It would be if even if in a best case scenario, if I had been able to get there on Mondays or on different times, it would be a major game of prioritization and a lot of teamwork with people to make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, the idea of going from January through through May and possibly June on some bad years uh, without without being able to work with them um, was just a, a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. And you read some remarks to the to the House 
this mm-hmm. week that were quite eloquent and quite beautiful. But one of them that stood out, a couple things that stood out to me when I was reading them later was one you had talked about um, how the legislature needed to be strengthened and also how it needed to look at the general fund differently. These were two things that stood out to me. Can can you talk about what you meant around using the, the general fund differently or perceiving it differently? Sure. There, there was a, there were a few parts of that, and I'll talk about the easier, what I think is the easier one. Unfortunately, I think when you serve on appropriations or work with the budget too much, you tend to go in the weeds. So feel free to stop me uh, if I do that. Um, but oh, no, we do were... geek here. It's okay. Okay, good. <laughs> so uh, for those that don't know, the um, I'll start off with the easier part of the general fund, which is that the, the governor proposes a budget, and then the legislature goes through and makes changes to the budget. But the legislature is, in my opinion, the most open and transparent branch of government, and it's the one that's really supposed to be the voice of people in government. You know, mm-hmm. we, we have this connection with our constituents and the ideas that we bring their ideas forward. Um, what I was saying in one part of that when it comes to the budgeting piece was that my hope was is that people would that, that that the legislature in the house in particular because we have a constitutional authority to originate the spending bill was that we would prioritize what we want and what our uh, constituents tell us they want instead of just fighting about what the governor says he wants I have a great example of that um, that I'm seeing play out this week, Olga, that might resonate um, on a conversation that we had last week. Um, so the Office of the Child Advocate is, you know, a huge priority for me and I think a huge priority for a lot of legislators in Wyndham County, given our child protection issues, <clears throat> and was um, the top priority of the majority of the Human Services Committee going into the session. But when the Human Services Committee received their section of the budget to look over, the governor's budget had zeroed out some significant programs in the human services budget and had drastically reduced many more. Hmm. And so that committee is spending all of their time trying to sort of protect territory they already had rather than be thinking about what they actually want in order to create good policy on behalf of the Vermonters that they serve. And so we wind up in this reactionary position instead of this proactive position because of the way we sort of frame the governor's budget as a starting point always. Good example. Thank you. Um, So that's sort of the the part. And I think the overriding um, idea behind all the remarks that I made is that uh, keeping in mind that the the legislative branch is one of the easiest branches to weaken, but it also is the one that is most closely connected with people, mm-hmm. uh, with our neighbors, with Vermonters as a whole, and it's the one that's really supposed to reflect people um, that that, um, that that live here. And so the idea of weakening it at the expense of one of the other branches um, is is kind of a dangerous territory, and that that'll it go. It means that we move government further and further away from the people. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly, uh, and that shows up in in many different things, and probably will come up again in our later discussion. 
Um, but the the idea of the general fund piece. So, for again, for those who aren't aware, there's uh, three major funds and then many minor funds. Many, many minor. Funds. Many, many, many minor funds called special funds. But other than that, you have the general fund, the education fund, and the transportation fund. Mm-hmm. And while there are different sources that go into them, the two main sources of the two main sources in the education fund are property taxes and sales tax. The transportation fund is the gas tax. There's other things that go in there. And then the general fund is kind of everything else. So when it comes to transportation issues, the transportation fund pays for it. When it comes to the things that uh, schools uh, raise through votes uh, for school budgets, that comes out of the education fund. And everything else that Vermonters come to expect from government comes out of essentially the general fund. I mean, there's some federal dollars in there, too, but that just complicates everything. Hmm. So the general fund is sort of the catch-all for where most things are paid for. But the problem with that is is that um, it doesn't, it's not connected to a hot-button issue like property taxes. So what ends up happening is we end up in a situation where um, people are very afraid to have education costs truly come out of the education fund, which ultimately would increase property taxes, but would give Vermonters an actual idea of what spending decisions on a local level are costing. But every time we take money out of the general fund, we're taking it away from programs or services that Vermonters care about. Um, the other thing that comes up, and we're seeing it play out this week in the marijuana debate, um, is the idea about um, new revenue sources. Mm-hmm. So when new revenue presents itself, there's often a tendency to put money into the education fund. The reason for that is because you get, you get to say, well, it lowers property taxes. But because incremental money going into the fund makes such a small dent in property tax issues, it doesn't actually do that, and the money could be put to much greater use by putting it in the general fund where things are much cheaper to provide more services for more Vermonters. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that in the uh, marijuana debate because one of the changes that the Ways and Means Committee made in the upcoming cannabis bill is that a portion of the money will then go into the, um, into the education fund because we're talking about a much smaller amount of money because we're so late to the party on tax and regulate, uh, the the distance that that money will go in the Ed Fund is much smaller than the good that it could do in the general fund. So my statement to the... And what we see and sort of how some of that plays itself out in the general fund because it's such a scarcity environment is that we see programs that are providing essential services being pit against each other to protect their small piece of the pie because so much, because of the scarcity, so much of what's considered sort of good policy happens at the margins of what's possible. And we talked about that when we were talking about the governor's budget address, mm-hmm. sort of the limited impact it was having. But it has become a political third rail issue to say anything about the education fund because it relates to property taxes. And it relates to our kids. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, you wind up with um, the Democrats love sanctimony. And so we're both, you know, 
scared of property taxes and scared of doing anything that would be perceived against, you know, Vermont's children, which are both very good points, but it really removes all the complexity from the situation. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also removes the fact that all these pieces are interconnected. Uh, right. If people were getting the services they need, schools may not have to provide them, for example. Um, for a great example, yeah. So what, in your view, um, Matt, since you are about to fly out the door and you are probably the most free you will ever be as a legislature to say whatever ever you want. Um, oh, Matt said whatever he wanted. Yeah, that's gotten me in trouble many times up there. <laughs> um, how, like, are there concrete steps that you think lawmakers can take to to better serve the general, the general fund? You know, I think we should have an honest conversation with Vermonters about education. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a tendency to uh, address either the governance side or the spending side. Uh, and by spending, I mean like the, the fund side. But there's no real honest conversation with Vermonters that I've seen happening in my time there. So what I mean by that is that, you know, I, I just, I come back to a system that I believe is fundamentally flawed at its core. And I don't mean to advocate on either side of this issue because I'm in no way knowledgeable enough to know which is the better um, piece to lay on, but I have a hard time, um, envisioning how on one hand you can continue to have um, local spending, local decision-making around spending with statewide raising of funds without a check somewhere. Mm. I just can't see how a system like that continues to work in perpetuity. Um, And I wish we would have the conversation with people because I think it, it, it comes down to a, an issue of values. I do think there's an absolute value to local people knowing how they want their children um, raised and what they want their schools to do. Um, and and at, But at the same time, I think we have to have some, some understanding that perhaps the, um, the taxing and spending side has to be different to maintain that. And I'm hoping that this is, you know, Next week on the Montpelier Happy Hour, we're talking about the student waiting study, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping that that is um, an opening for some of those really difficult conversations in the aftermath of Act 46 and mm-hmm. um, 20 years after Act 60. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, this is probably me being a little cheeky, but I, I think one reason our ed system has gone so long without some of these reviews is um, basically so many people in the community have gotten so frustrated with not understanding how the the education funding works that they've Mm -hmm. kind of thrown up their hands and been like oh whatever it just I uh," and they've kind of walked away from the debate I think the other part is that um, it's sort of the second half of Matt's speech Mm -hmm. is that the majority of the folks in the legislature are really far removed from a time in their life where they're directly involved in their school system. 
mm-hmm. um, on a day-to-day basis and what the impacts of the school system look like. We have a lot of people that are still serving on school boards, but we have very few people who have school-aged children mm-hmm. um, or who have friends with school-aged children. And so a lot of us in the legislature are sort of making decisions based on the memory of what was um, rather than the reality of what is. Mm-hmm. That's beautifully said. Yes, which brings us to the other part of Matt's speech, as Emily alluded to, where you talk about some of the weaknesses in the citizen legislature. Uh, Matt, can you kind of give our audience some context on that? Sure. So I'll start off by, you know, like you said before, I can be as blunt as I want now, so I will. I'll start off by saying that I refer to it as the myth of a citizen legislature. I refer to it as the farce of the citizen legislature. So we're good. Yay. We're good. Yay. Um, like we, we can get a, a thesaurus out and come up with other names for it, too. Uh, and the reason that I say that, and I won't speak for Emily, but I think we probably feel the same way about this, is um, that we've made service so difficult in that body by the length of time that we're there, the amount of of money that gets paid during the time that you're there, and the fact that basically someone is is dumped off the system and must find a different way to do things like acquire health insurance or um, different things for the rest of the year because there are no benefits that come with the legislature. Uh, Because of that, when you look around the room, we do not have a legislature that is representative of the Vermont populace that they are supposed to directly represent. Um, I feel or I'm concerned that for it truly to be a citizen legislature, um, any person who wants to run and serve their community should be able to. And I want to clarify something about this because I think there's a lot of states that it's actually very possible for someone to serve regardless of where they're coming from. And in fact, it's running that's incredibly difficult if you don't have access to wealth. And in Vermont, it's very, very easy to run um, if you don't have access to wealth. You don't need to raise very much money. You need to turn out some volunteers and you need to have sort of the weekend time to knock on doors. I was able to do that while working a full-time job, but serving means that you need to be, have your time be totally flexible five months of the year, be away from your job for five months of the year. And your family, absolutely. Um, I spend not just the four days a week that I spend in the legislature, but I spend all day Saturday doing constituent-related work and catching up. Um, And then throughout the other seven months of the year when we're not in office, there's probably two full days a week that people are expecting us to be in meetings in our communities at a minimum. I would, so I'd go even further than that to say that there are times when I've looked at the calendar gone, I could eat every breakfast and lunch this week mm-hmm. by just showing up where people have invited us to go and, and listen and talk. Uh, and there's a, there's a downside because you can't obviously do all that. You're obviously not getting that information that those people wanted to give you. Um, but at the same time, you also can't work and <laughs> or or do things that are um, that are 
you know, important to you and your family. And I think it's important that people know that, you know, like I said, there are no benefits in the legislature. It's the one branch of government that does not have benefits. And so, when I first started my service in the legislature, um, my office sort of calculated how much time I would be out of the office over the course of the entire year, said you are not actually averaging out to the 30 hours a week that we require for someone to maintain health insurance here. And we're going to sort of take me off health insurance until I showed them the piece of statute that requires them to sort of maintain almost like National Guard service that requires mm -hmm. them to maintain me. But because we're an at-will state, they actually had no obligation to keep me in my job, even though they had an obligation to allow me to maintain my benefits while I was there, if I was going to stay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And we're also only paid for the time that we're in service. So mm -hmm. all those times that Emily was <clears throat> talking about where you're invited, you know, multiple times a week through the entire off session, uh, those are, those are, you're not paid for that. So, um, I think one of the most frequent things, you know, when, when people come into the legislature uh, and, they, and they're starting off in their freshman, you often ask, what, what brought you here? And one of the most frequent things that people say is, well, you know, I retired recently and I had always wanted to serve in the legislature and I figured this was the time. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the, um, there's a group of um, three women under 25 who are in the legislature right now. And um, they sort of are really noticing the demographics and they were asking me about it. And they noticed that there's three women under 25 and then there are four women in their 40s. Um, I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. And then you're really jumping up into like, you know, late 50s. The men have a slightly more even spread across the under 50 range. <clears throat> um, but not, you know, the majority of folks are doing this um, as they retire and as their kids leave home. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, this is an area where, where, um, where Governor Scott is, is, is right when he says we have a demographic challenge. But then if you look throughout the legislature and you say, how many of these people serving are raising kids, have those school-aged kids? And, uh, you know, looking around the room, what do you, what, what do you think? Maybe... I think there's like six, six of us. Yeah. yeah. So you can't even count that in two hands out of 180 people. So then when trying to figure out why policies don't actually reflect what families are looking for or need to be able to thrive, it's because you're talking about six out of 180 people. Who really know what it's like at this point in history in this state to be doing this. Exactly. Um, so the other thing, so just one more layer of mm -hmm. it. Um, and then if we think about people who are serving in House leadership or folks who are serving on the money committees, there is even more time expectation of being in the building for those jobs as well. Um, and so that becomes even if you to be in true decision making capacity, um, making decisions about sort of the work of the whole body, that takes even more time away from the workplace and makes it even more impossible to have a job. Right. So when it, when I was on appropriations for five years, we also meet in December, and we meet most Mondays as well. So while the rest of the legislature isn't there um, on on Mondays, we we work on Mondays as well. So one of the questions that was asked when considering um, when when originally being considered for that committee was, do you have to work? <laughs> Can you show up on Mondays? 
Mm-hmm. So that'll put a nice fine point on that for yeah. Emily. So just to play devil's advocate, because I think for a lot of people, we are so entrenched in this culturally of having a citizen legislature that changing that would be a huge shift for a lot of people. And, mm-hmm. and so if we shift it, I think we need to do it consciously, of course. So just to play devil's advocate, um, I hear what you're saying about demographics and representation, but isn't that in part why we take testimony and, and <laughs> get public comment to to try to balance out the voices of the legislature with the voices of the people? Um, so the people who give testimony, um, and I did a panel for the Snelling Center Vermont Leadership Institute last week where I asked sort of, it was a panel of journalists and I was facilitating it to talk about what um, reporting on the legislature was like. Mm-hmm. And so I asked, we had a conversation about this exact same topic, and that was sort of the usual suspects and implicit bias. And that journalists in the state house tend to get the same folks to comment on any given issue. And I would say that for the most part, the committees tend to get the same folks to comment on a given issue. Um, they tend to be folks who are very professionalized, who spend, spend the majority of their time already in the legislature. There was a great article about um, Matt's work on judiciary and how they had recently had a domestic violence bill where the majority of the witnesses on the domestic violence bill were men. Hmm. Um, if you caught that. I did. Yes. Um, and so we, we have a lot of people who are paid to be in the building all day. Um, we can call them advocates or lobbyists or whatever we want to call them. Um, but they are paid full-time to be in the building full-time, and those are the folks that testify. And so I recently had a bill, fairly minor, um, on non-compete clauses, and the majority of the folks who were affected by this bill were just like regular people working regular jobs. Um, And the majority of the folks who opposed this bill were industry associations of one kind or another. Who all have lobbyists. Who all have lobbyists who spend their entire day sitting in my committee room. And so every time we made an amendment to the bill, all of the lobbyists would get an opportunity to testify again about the bill. But the affected people, sort of people from my community, did not have the time or bandwidth to testify over and over and over and over and over again about these minor changes to the bill. And so the conversation, because we have a citizen legislature um, and folks are not necessarily like, you know, deeply practiced in implicit bias and like, you know, data-driven decision-making and all kinds of things. The conversation slowly gets nudged and nudged and nudged and nudged towards the testimony that you hear the most often because mm-hmm. that is the nature of humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but I think there's also a piece of it of, of who can be there. So right. let's take a working, uh, you know, a working family. That's Especially a working family from Wyndham County. Right. So think about what's required. So in some of the worst traveling conditions uh, or the time of year with the worst traveling conditions, you'd be expected to come up, take time off from work, because if you're a working family struggling to make it in Vermont, um, you're probably not swimming in time off that you Mm -hmm. can make the trip. Park about a mile away, take a bus in, 
sit there, find your committee room, testify in front of a bunch of people that Possibly you don't know. Possibly sit there for hours because the schedule has changed and you're not sure when you're up on testimony. Right. Sit there for hours in front of a group of people to testify about a bill that's written in legalese when you're not a lawyer. And, uh, you know, you, you just start, start to see the layers of the onion as you peel it about how it gets further and further away from the people that you're, you're, you're uh, trying to get. So, you know, when you, when you get testimony from a working family, you're getting it from an advocate who's paid, you know, paid to be there. Uh, and so, you know, we don't, we don't get that. And I do, I do want to clarify something from a, a little bit before. I, I want to make sure it's, it's clear that I'm not advocating that, you know, this should be a professional legislature, that we should be, you know, paid, paid a, 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 an amount of money where it's, it's uh, you know, careers for people. But I do think there's some changes that you could make that could be made to strengthen the legislature and make it a little bit easier for more people to serve. And on that note, yeah, Yeah. sorry. (laughs) Um, I I heard you talking about benefits earlier in the show. Um, What do you think needs to change so that more people can serve? So I think, you know, this this would be controversial, but I could be controversial. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I actually think that... um, you could free up some money to do it by just agreeing that you don't need 150 members of the house to still maintain a citizen legislature. I look at myself with a, with a, um, with a, a two seat district, which means we represent um, about 8,400, 8,500 people. Um, That's easily doable by one person and still maintain that close connection where you can still show up, where you're still known, where you still run into people at the supermarket and online places, and they can still talk to you in the freezer aisle. Um, But that frees up the ability to do things like make it so that um, people are are, uh, getting into the health insurance program. Perhaps you could get one member of staff that could be shared amongst a bunch of different legislators so that something was a little bit easier there was a little bit of of more free time for a legislator to do things that they need to do personally because don't forget we also don't have staff or offices mm-hmm. um, you could allow uh, legislators after a certain amount of time to buy into the state retirement program or something along those lines so that people that serve for a number of years during their prime working years aren't um, you know destroying any retirement options there's there's things that you do mostly around benefits um and so if we could buy into health insurance for instance um that would mean that the flexibility around part-time work the rest of the season would be much more possible Mm -hmm. so i could probably make the same money that i make at youth services bartending and it would offer me a degree of flexibility that would make serving much easier but then my family wouldn't have health insurance Right. Right. Or consulting, I wanted to actually continue building my career. Right. Thank you for that. We're we're just about to go to um, hear from some of our underwriters, but thank you for that insight, both of you, because I think um, most people, if they hear, oh, we want more people to serve, the first thing they think about is, oh, we have to 
pay more money for like salaries or something but benefits I think is something people might not have considered so I appreciate you bringing that up thank you just before we go to break anything else you want to quickly add I love hearing from our underwriters Olga (laughs) I love hearing from them too they are Oh, we have some great ones. We have some great ones. So stay tuned and you can you can hear from our underwriters. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour. We shall return in a moment. Olga Peters, and I have live from Montpelier, Representative Emily Kornheiser, and short-term representative for one more week, Matt Treber. Thank you so much for joining me, folks. Thanks again. So we're going to dive into a discussion. Um, Basically, I think I'm terming it just when you think your vote doesn't matter, it totally matters. And that is the veto override that did not happen. <laughs> Emily, would you give us some context on this? <laughs> sure. So um, two major priorities of Democrats this biennium are um, increasing the minimum wage and implementing a family medical leave policy, a universal family medical leave policy. And both bills um, passed the House and Senate in the middle of last year. They, um, the same versions did not pass both bodies. They were quite far apart in policy. And so, so both bills went to conference. Um, it took a very long time for the House and Senate to agree on what a good minimum wage bill and a good family medical leave bill looked like. Um, and we've sort of talked about some of the details of that on previous happy hours. Mm-hmm. and um, finally came into an agreement that did not work for anyone. Um, and so people in the legislature think, think that means that it's a good bill. And from that point, we went to a vote. And those passed both bodies, went to the governor, and the governor, as everyone had expected, vetoed both bills. And the first bill that came back to the House for a veto override is the family medical leave bill. So at the beginning of the biennium, um, some folks throughout Vermont celebrated the new wins um, in Democratic districts mm-hmm. um, as a supermajority um, and felt like now anything was possible. And I think this was a particularly strong thread in Wyndham County where people sometimes forget that the politics of Wyndham County are not the politics of Vermont, despite (laughs) our um, junior senator. Mm -hmm. Um, Referring to Bernie Sanders there, in case anyone is not catching that one. Oh, I thought you meant Becca Ballant. I'm not referring to Becca Ballant. There we go. Um, And so what that meant is a veto over and why i'm saying that is the veto override um with really as absurdly broad or big or diverse diverse seems like the wrong word a tent um the democrats are 
in the Vermont House, um, a veto override is still a very, very difficult thing to achieve. Mm. And particularly on issues around family medical leave or minimum wage, um, where there's a lot of different reasons someone cannot like a bill like that. Um, it became a very tight vote. And I wanted to sort of pair this with the conversation that we were having with Matt, because I think that issues like this um, that are really about working families more than anyone else um, are particularly hard for the legislature given how um, undiverse we are because people tend to, you know, know people that are of a similar class and demographic than they are. It's an enormous amount of work to have a very diverse group of friends in your community. Mm -hmm. And so the everyday lives of most folks in the legislature don't interact with folks who um, would see, given the privilege that all of us have um, to be able to serve, most folks in the legislature are not spending the majority of their time with folks who are making minimum wage or folks who don't already have access to some benefits. Um, and so I think that shifts the conversation from something about us to something about sort of them and those people who need something. And I think it, it changes the tenor of the conversation a little bit. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? So I think that's a fair point. Um, I'll say that when you talk to people about, so I have a bit of history with this bill. So years ago, several sessions ago, I introduced this bill before it became uh, political football. Hmm. Um, I was, uh, I went on with, with a few people and uh, actually got, um, I worked very hard to make it a bipartisan bill. Uh, and I had four Republicans sign on to the bill and ultimately had five Republicans voting for the bill um, when it went through the entire process. Hmm. But I will say that the conversation was very different from what you heard from people advocating the bill to, um, to conversations that people had within the building. At the time, um, you know, people that really wanted to see the bill go through were talking about the sort of parental leave side of when you know you you have a child you could bond with the child um, and people within the building were talking more about uh, about the ability for them to care for their parents when they became ill or for their children to care for them when they became ill mm -hmm. they saw that as the benefit of the bill so just to show you how even a bill can uh, a person's life perspective can change what they see as the benefits of that bill. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, Matt and I are some of the sort of dozen or so folks who are still sort of sandwich generate who are sandwich generation within the building. And so, you know, I was one of the few people who was talking about what it means for my working life to be caring for both a child and soon a parent. Mm -hmm. um, just sort of some, you know, demographic perspective on that. Mm -hmm. And so um, the bill came to the floor for the veto override. Generally, and I think people outside the building might not know this, um, things generally are not voted out of committee until House leadership is sure that they will pass on the floor. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a lot of sort of theater and orchestra and whatever other terrible metaphor you want to use. Um, But generally things don't come to the floor until someone is sure that they're going to pass. Yeah, the floor is a dance. It's a wonderful bit of um, pageantry to watch, but nothing really happens there. It is definitely more of a musical or a ballet and not sort of improv or hip hop. Right. That is such a good very point. Cool. Very polished dance, yeah. It's certainly not a contra dance. <laughs> yeah, we forget how much work actually happens in committees. Um, and But because we being humans, we always watch the floor because I think when it comes to politics, we like the theater. And we Absolutely. sometimes forget about just the the roll up the sleeves, elbow grease work that happens elsewhere in the political process. Mm-hmm. So on the family medical leave bill, um, because of a certain huge degree of compromise that happened between the House and the Senate, um, and I would say that um, we could all use some more skills on how we come to compromises um, that are much more interest driven and less sort of um, transactional instead of just sort of everyone cuts half off and meets in the middle, I think we could do some better work to get sort of back to basics on what we're compromising about. But due to the particular compromise that came forward, the House lost um, Demo- lost sort of the far left um, because the, they can, the, most of the advocates for the bill considered it too compromised mm-hmm. um, and didn't want it to pass and then lost sort of um, – the conservative wing of the the Democrats. It's been interesting to me um, as someone who has never played any sports and doesn't generally understand like tribal or team behavior. um, A veto override um, brings people in in the spirit of camaraderie against the governor in a way that... um, Or for the governor. Or for the governor. Depending on which side you are. Yeah, um, in a way that doesn't really resonate for me, um, but is incredibly resonant within the building. Can you explain that more, Matt? Sure. So, so one would think that when you were um, when you were contemplating the idea of a veto override, the most important thing would be you'd say, "Well, the governor's vetoed this bill, so the one thing standing between me and the or or between this bill and it becoming uh, law for 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 Vermonters is my vote." So, one would think that you may take an even harder look at a bill at that point. But what actually happens is there's this tendency where you'll see even Republicans that supported a bill when it went through the process or Democrats that did not support the bill rally behind their side instead. And that's often a a statement that's used around the building of, you know, it becomes a who wins? Does Mitzi win or does Bill Scott win? You know, it, it that becomes more of the of the conversation that does this bill become law? Does it override the veto? I think that speaks to something that um, I want to mention. It's something that I've seen um, in the House over time, uh, which is that, you know, you get caught up and people call the building the bubble often. And you really can get caught up in the bubble and the fights and the who wins and the who loses and who came out ahead on this or did the House or the Senate, which side was more powerful or what happened? And often we can lose sight of um, that what we do at the end of the day majorly affects Vermonters. And I'll say that this 
this particular bill, it's interesting that we're talking about this now because this is one of those bills that is very important to me. I have, like I said, I have a history with the bill, um, but I didn't sign on to it this, uh, this time. Um, so I was the lead sponsor of it last time and I didn't sign on this time. And the reason that I didn't sign on to it was because I didn't like the political fight or the football that got played with it, um, in, in my opinion, to the detriment of Vermonters who could benefit from it last session. Um, when we headed into this session, at the start of the conversations, when leadership was asking sort of, where do you stand on a veto override? Um, I told them that, you know, in going around and talking to people, I see this as one of the biggest benefits that we can do to help people with families um, care for their families and, um, and actually uh, pay attention to what's important in life. Uh, and I told them at the time that I'd vote for anything that's a family leave bill that gets it to Vermonters. And I think one of my huge disappointments out of this, and one thing that I did say as soon as that veto override vote failed, is I went back to leadership uh, in the speaker's office and I said, I'm not going to be here for this, but I hope that at the end of the day, we get some form of family and medical leave insurance to Vermonters because they can't afford another couple years of us bickering over who wins the game. Um, and I think that too often we lose sight of the fact that what we do becomes law. Uh, and it's not about who won or who came out on top. It's the fact that there's going to be babies born in August whose parents could have stayed home and cared for them and bonded with each other and bonded with the baby. And those parents are going to have to go back to work or have to quit their jobs and, um, perhaps spend years trying to climb back from it um, because we weren't able to come to an agreement right. across right. 100 people and, and, the, and the governor. I mean, you know. Well, there's often, there's, and, and there's a tendency. I mean, you hear it around the building. Well, we'll use this as a campaign thing against Bill Scott next time that he vetoed this, and that, you know. And, but there's a cost to that, which is exactly what Emily said, that there's a group of people that could have benefited from this bill in the interim, who are not going to benefit from it, and we're not going to see the, the benefits of, uh, of them um, accessing this leave during the time that they truly need it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sitting with what, what you both just said, because um, going back to my, my comment earlier about the, the theater of politics versus the policy building parts of it um yeah so how do we as a community um for lack of a better term say to our legislature legislators look we don't care um about the football we want results like, is that well, a message you think the legislature can even heal here? I do in some ways. And I think it's really, um, I think it's really interesting in where sort of the blame got placed on this issue. And it's hmm. sort of the, really been on the two people um, who are sort of considered 
interchangeable on this issue. You know, it was the, you know, the rep on the far left who said no, and then the person who um, was sort of perceived to have flipped their vote on this issue. And there's, but there's all of the other people who also voted against the veto override. And so I think it's really interesting that sort of um, a huge increase in childcare funding passed with bipartisan support um, and was able to pass with bipartisan support. And I see this as a very similar conversation, and yet it fell down on party lines. And so I think in some ways it's up to Democrats to work harder to depoliticize issues and to remove the sanctimony, the incredibly alienating sanctimony around some of the conversations we have. Um, but I do think it's also up to people's constituents to say, you know, this is what my life is like, and this is how I would benefit from this. And I know that, you know, politics are how things get done, but I need you to sort of be thinking about my story when you show up in the legislature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say that, you know, just from a standpoint, inside or outside the building, we're not built in a way that reacts to shades of gray. So when I look at my emails about this issue or any other, they're, they're minutely focused on one side of it, uh, one aspect of the bill on either side, and they all say vote yes or vote no based uh-huh. on this one issue. Um, and I think that's, that's a problem that shows itself. You know, I, I think you know, now, that I, now that I don't actually have to go in front of voters again, the thing that I would ask them to do is to really take a step back sometimes from knee-jerk reactions to issues and see if, um, you know, what they're being told, the email that they're getting from Rights and Democracy or from the, the, the Center for Small Business or something is, is actually getting them to advocate for something that they truly want to. Um, and or- to sit in it's really hard for all of us to sit in cognitive dissonance or gray areas or whatever it is, but to enter these questions with some curiosity mm-hmm. about what the broader. So I had a bunch of people who were huge supporters of family medical leave who in the last days kept sending me emails saying, vote against this, vote against this without any, because of like certain issues in it, without any conversation towards what the benefits would be or what would be lost, the things that we talked about. Um, you know, on the on the minimum wage one that's coming up, I have some small businesses that are emailing and saying, you know, this is the worst thing ever without having any part of the conversation about what some of the benefits to them may be through employee retain, uh, being able to retain an employee over periods of time because they're not, you know, leaving constantly to find better work, the training that comes into that. There's just Issues are very, very rarely black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you totally support a bill, you'll often find there are holes in it large enough to drive a truck through. Um, so I would just ask people to think about things a little bit more in shades of gray when evaluating it. It doesn't mean that you have to compromise entirely, but just take a larger look at it when advocating. Mm-hmm. I think what I'm left with with this conversation, and we're we're just about out of time, um, is what I'm really sitting with is, while I like to think of the political process as policy building, and that, of course, is a big part of it, 
I'm realizing still how much of our system is set up as reactionatory rather than starting with a vision and and knowing what the state either wants or needs, the, the community as a whole, and then finding the policy that meets those needs or meets that vision where we are kind of reacting. Um, yeah, we're, we're reacting rather than being proactive is, mm -hmm. is what I'm sitting with right now. Yep. And we get, we get tribal based on talking points that come up. I mean, the, like, look at the, uh, look at the, look at the presidential campaign that we're in the middle of right now. You know, we're, we're having this huge debate as Democrats. Um, well, as a Democrat, I won't speak for anyone else, except for I know Emily is one too. We're having this, one of the big debates is Medicare for all or Medicare for all who want it. And at the end of the day, it's ignoring the fact that right now, regardless of where we are, the healthcare system is fundamentally broken and something has to be done, but we're fighting, we're doing this internal fighting over, you know, which, which side we take. Either one of them would be better than, than uh, where we are now. And I think one thing that's really um, going to be interesting for me to carry forward, especially without Matt and um, this year and I think a few other members who are going to be um, not running again is the pressure to not highlight the nuance in an issue is huge. Hmm. Um, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican um, and the profound need to continue doing that. Um, but how really incredibly unpopular one becomes if one continues to poke, to poke holes in things to bring nuance, not to sort of call names, not to um, kill a bill, but just say, like, we can go into this with our eyes wide open and still say we like it. And I think our constituents will respect us more for that. But mm -hmm. it's a real change, and it's a hard one to lead on. Definitely. Definitely. Well, on that note, I want to wish uh, Matt Treber all the best luck as you step down from the legislature and return to civilian life in your community. Um, Thanks. Oh, you're so welcome. It's been, and It's been really great, if I could just say, it's been really great working with you over all these years, getting to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Matt. Same here. Same here. Um, I know we didn't talk often because um, I tend to cover Brattleboro, but the times we did talk, I appreciated it very much. Will you be raising, <laughs> since this is a happy hour, we always do like to talk about um, how we imbibe from time to time, whether it's alcoholic or otherwise. Uh, will you be raising any type of glass in celebration once once your term has officially ended next week? I will probably be trying to... Um raise a glass with some friends around here and trying not to cry all over it. <laughs> at the idea. But I will point out uh, just because it's one of my bills this year that happy hour is actually illegal in Vermont and we should change that. Yeah. I think um, Emily and I felt a little rebellious naming it the happy hour. I love it. And we actually had Dan Noyes, another sponsor of that happy hour bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had him on a few weeks ago. And so um, that's a new theme here on the happy hour that there's no happy hour in Vermont. Well, that's good. Hopefully, hopefully that won't be the case soon. Hopefully it will be a less ironic title. 
<laughs> Emily, anything you want to say before we sign off? No, thank you so much for a great conversation, Matt. And i um, looking forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you. Same here. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in today. I am your host, Olga Peters. You can find this conversation will be podcasted later today online at our Vermontitude SoundCloud page, as well as our Vermontitude Facebook page. Emily, how can folks find you if they have questions? EmilyKornheiser.org, eKornheiser at gmail.com or ledge.state.vt.us. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as Emily Kornheiser. And always every Saturday at 11 a.m. in the co-op cafe for my office hours. Looking forward to talking to everyone. Fantastic. Hey, everyone, have a great weekend. And we will be back next week to talk about waiting studies and education formula. Take care.